This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can take your seat. So again, I'm, I'm Kyle. Um, I, get, I get to help lead this church. And, um, you know, each season offers a, a unique opportunity to deal with transitions and not just deal with it. And I th- there's been a helpful shift for me in this past season of get to rather than have to. I like get to participate in this community. I get to engage with these real life uh, circumstances as a community. And I I say that um, because the teaching text that we just heard read, I think is is an invitation of Jesus that is a get to, not a have to. And so I just, I put that preface in front of you just to maybe shape our collective imagination that we get to receive these words. So uh, before we get into Jesus's teaching and those words we just heard read, I want to share a story about a man who in the name of peace walked through a field of blood. So nothing like nonviolence and fields of blood on a Sunday morning. So in, in 1218, this is, you know, roughly 800 plus years ago. In Demietta, which is an Egyptian port city at the, at the mouth of the Nile River. So think uh, the African continent, North Africa by the Mediterranean Sea, where the Nile River meets the Mediterranean. There's this little port city in 1218, Demietta. And that city was consumed by holy war in that year, in 1218. Years earlier, about 200 years earlier, in fact, Pope Urban II, he called people from across Europe, whether they were knights or they were just common folk, to go and take up arms against, quote, that vile race, end quote. The vile race that Pope Urban II was talking about were Muslims in general. And so Pope Urban II, he calls the people to do this, and the chronicler of the day, because there's no people live tweeting the Crusades, the chronicler of the day, this is Robert the Monk, which just like, that's a great, Robert the Monk, I don't, anyways. Um, so Robbie, he goes and he's like noting that Pope Urban, he incentivized violence and he did it with religious language. This is still seen today where we can attach religious significance to our actions, but it was quite explicit because Pope, Pope Urban said that if you fight, it will be for the remission of your sins. So there's actual penance attached to you spilling that vile race's blood. So with religious fervor in one hand and a sword in the other, one generation after the other set out to fight in the name of their God. There's actually, I don't know if this is urban legend or history, but there's a story of when knights would be going into battle in the Crusades, they would, go, they would receive a baptism, but they would not fully go under because um, their hand with their sword would still be left out of the baptismal waters. Jesus, you can have everything except my sword. This is the disconnect that we encounter And that's what these people are wading into. There's 200 years later, and here in the fifth campaign in that small port city of Demietta, it is is under siege. And then this friar wades into the middle of all that bloodshed. There's some accounts that say the field of battle and the Crusades were like knee-high in blood and corpses. 
So this is a graphic scene. Imagine the most gory movie you can imagine, um, and then try and like think, yeah, that actually happened. And into that scene, Francis of Assisi shows up. And Francis of Assisi shows up not to fight, not to like bless the soldiers before they go into battle. Francis of Assisi goes there to see if he can actually preach peace into the whole of the conflict. And so Assisi is like, people think he's actually there to pray, and, but he's going back and forth on the front where the soldiers are. There's 80,000 Muslims and 40,000 quote-unquote Christians who are there ready to do battle, but there's kind of this stalemate. And Assisi, Francis of Assisi, goes past enemy lines, and he's captured by the troops, and he wants to, he's, he wants to be taken to the ruler. He wants to talk to Sultan al-Kamil, and eventually he's taken back, and, and the sultan is so surprised by the courage and the countenance of peace that Francis carries with him and his companion, that he receives him for a meal. And I don't know if you've ever received hospitality from people who are Middle Eastern. We had uh, neighbors a while back, who uh, the El Houts, who were from Egypt. And they would invite us over. And it was often late in the evening. We didn't have kids in the season of our life. And so we had evenings. Um, and it's, it's, it was fantastic. Uh, and so we were over there. And Shaymet would like, she would never stop feeding you. It was like if you had, if there was, if your plate was getting empty, all of a sudden there was another homemade dish and you were like, really, I am full. I can't eat anymore. And she, no, you have more. <laughs> so this is the experience. For a month, Francis and his companion are there, across on the other side of enemy lines. And it's hospitality. It humanizes the people who are supposedly that vile race. And it's there in that context that then there's this conversation about Jesus. And I don't know if you knew this, but Islam actually knows who Jesus is. They know who Isha is, like, and, and he is a renowned prophet. Now, he did not die on the cross. He swooned. He like just took a little nap and then, ha, there he is up from the grave. But, so there's different realities of what the Christian tradition and what Islam would say about Jesus, but they know who Jesus is. But just picture this. Francis of Assisi is able to preach Jesus without getting killed. So his level of, like, not just tact, but I think that countenance of peace carries him for a month behind enemy lines. And then uh, the Sultan al-Kamil offers him land and riches, but because he's taken a vow of poverty, he says, no, I'm all right. And he goes back to announce that there's peace possible. But the cardinal who's overseeing this fifth crusade at Demietta, which is to be the first on their way to the Holy Land, um, he says, no, we will not surrender. And more and more people die because of their inability to receive the peace that was on offer. Other than this being a really cool story, what's the point? Because Francis, he didn't end the Crusades. Like one person is not going to end a culture war. I mean, if we know anything, culture wars are inspired by something that you might, if you're me, call like a demonic power. Like they're animated by some sort of energy that is not going to be diffused by one person. So Francis didn't do that. But in the darkest hour of church history, the light of Jesus was shining forth through a poor monk. Just picture the contrast of that. And I share this story for two reasons. First, I think that we just need to be honest about our heritage if we're going to, I don't know, be thoughtfully present in the moment that we're in. Like, we just need to name the Crusades as it was. 
which is this dark hour in the history of the church that did not reflect the love of Jesus. Like the, the Jesus that we're about to work through his words in the Sermon on the Mount are at odds with the Crusades. So we just have to name that. So that's the first reason I share this. But the second reason is uh, that we need to hear that there's another way. Like we need to hear that in the midst of the darkest hour of church history, there, is, there are people like the Francis of Assisi, because in the midst of relational strife, we need to hear that there's another way forward with Jesus. In the face of like post-prom shootings in our own city, we need to hear that there's another way forward with Jesus. When we think about the madness that, that are midterm elections, and it, somehow they just fall on our city, something fierce, we need to hear that there is another way with Jesus. And in the midst of escalating military crises, we need to hear that there is another way with Jesus. Do you know what we need to hear? That there is another way with Jesus. Okay, we're on the same track. You can talk back. I'm okay with that. So on the surface, this passage doesn't seem viable in 2022. Jesus and nonviolence. Now, just a little confession here. I don't come from like a really robust church tradition, but what has come to, I don't know, be somewhat like a core for me is something in the Anabaptist tradition. This, these are people who like drive like horses and buggies. So I'm not gonna call us to like go and um, I don't know, be Quakers or something. Uh, but I just want to let you know, I'm just, cards on the table, this is kind of how I'm coming to this passage, is that I'm, I think Jesus is serious. And yet when I come to these words, especially in verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, they don't quite seem viable in 2022, because much like Jesus's sexual ethic, uh, there's a temptation to just say, this certainly can't be true for today. Like, okay, Jesus was in the first century, and these are to Jewish people in a very specific time, in a specific place. This can't be relevant for today. Like, how could it be? Like, is Jesus actually saying, do not resist an evil person? Okay, so is Jesus saying, just let the murderer and sex trafficker in our midst just do their thing? Certainly, Jesus is not saying that. But if you read this just on the surface, it would seem as though do not resist an evil person is saying that. Am I like off the wall for thinking that? No, I think just the plain reading of this would lead us to believe that. And to my mind, and really my mind shaped by thinkers like Greg Boyd and Walter Wink and Scott McKnight, um, I actually don't think Jesus is saying just do not resist them as we might think, don't do anything. In other words, be passive. It's not like Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, follow me, then just expect some abuse and be the type of person who can receive it and move on. I think Jesus has something entirely different, and we need to remember what Jesus is doing. So anybody remember what is happening in the Sermon on the Mount? I know we're not the type of people yet to shout things out, so let me just say it for us. Jesus is announcing the good news of the kingdom. He has just said in Matthew chapter 4, uh, turn around because there's a new way to live, a new way to be human in the world, which is called the kingdom of God. And Jesus then, this is the context, Jesus is a Galilean Jew speaking broadly to other Galilean Jews, people who are mostly working class. These are, these are the people who fill the audience on that hillside when Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And for those people, most of whom are not living, quote-unquote, their best life, there is a very real strain, and that strain is twofold. The first part of that strain is labor itself. Like, this is, these are people who are strained under real labor, and the second aspect of this is that 
It's a specific strain of an occupying military force. Now, I've never experienced an occupying military force, so I don't want to pretend that I know what the heck this is like. But I imagine it is real, and I imagine it is a strain. And it's to these people that Jesus reminds them, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is called the lex talionis, or the law of just retribution. And, and if you're like thinking eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that sounds familiar. It's because it, it is. If you're going to roll through the Old Testament, specifically the Torah, you'll find this three times over. Uh, Exodus 21 Moses commands this. If there is serious injury, just listen to this. You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And if you have a sibling, you're like, yes, this, this is true. I know this, I know this text. Um, it's in my heart. This is my life verse right here. No, um, Jesus is saying, you, you remember this. You know the Levitical call in Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. And then the same thing comes out. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Jesus is saying, you, you remember that the generation who's going to inherit the land that was promised, they, they heard this, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And I think that we know this as well. There's something about these, the law of just retribution, the lex talionis, that we're just like, yes, that makes sense. But we know it more intensely. We know what's called escalation. Escalation kind of sounds like this. You slap me, I punch you in the face. You, you throw a drink, I flip a table. You sanction my country, I cyber attack yours. You fly a plane into my building, I invade your country. We know this, but we call it escalation. We actually know it more intensely. And to these people, Jesus says, yes, you've heard this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And what's curious about Jesus kind of naming this is um, this, this is actually viewed as a good thing in Jesus' day. Just stay with me for a moment. Um, this, the lex talionis, the law of just retribution, eye for eye, is meant to contain violence. And so it actually specifically prohibits what we would call escalation. I think that's my son crying. Um, It's escalating in the kids' area. Jesus is here to say, no, like, we don't want to just have eye for eye. We want something different we want something all together. This is the call of the kingdom of God. It's actually seeking a different type of thing. But in Jesus' day, the, to contain violence is a good thing. But Jesus wants to go beyond the good. He doesn't just want retributive justice or eye for eye. He wants just mercy. He actually wants to see mercy flow out. And so he says, you have heard this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And there we are again. What do you mean, Jesus? One Bible scholar, Scott McKnight, he makes this note that Jesus' words take the law of just retribution, this lex talionis, eye for eye, to a different place. So Jesus' words, do not resist an evil person, takes that law to a different place. Because that law, the lex talionis, was concerned with the requirement of equal retribution, while Jesus undermines that requirement. And then listen to this. Jesus reshapes how his followers are to respond to perpetrators. 
So not in kind, but there is a different way. You don't respond to evil with evil. There is a different way. In Jesus' words here, they call his followers not to use violence to resist violence. There is another way with Jesus. The kingdom of God is not a place of retribution. Let me just say this again. The kingdom of God is not a place of retribution. And retribution, just like if if you remember from a few weeks back, that teaching on divorce, like this is not God's fullest revelation. In other words, this is not God's fully revealed will for humanity. This is an accommodation to a people who are inclined toward escalation. And so God is trying to work with them right where God's found them and say, we're going to contain the violence and work towards something that looks more like my character. And let's just remember Lest we think that the God that we encounter in the Old Testament is like nasty and pernicious and Jesus is, I don't know, calm and sweet. Recall that what Jesus is doing is he is filling out, you have heard it said, but I say, he is filling out the heart of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is, all of his source material is the character of God revealed in the Old Testament. So he is not, he is not countering, he's not doing away with, he's bringing the reality of God to fulfillment. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what we see on earth is God's desire for humanity to flourish. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And you know that little line, love your neighbor as yourself? You, you maybe heard that one? Enough nods to say, okay, yes. Everyone online, they have heard, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Um, any idea where that came from? Leviticus, your fave book. This comes from Leviticus. Or or what about this one? I'm sure this is one you've seen cross-stitched into a pillow. Wait for the Lord. He will avenge you. No? No cross-stitched pillows? Okay. Maybe if your, like, uh, grandma was, like, a punk rocker or something. Uh, So this, but, like, Jesus is tapping in to the the God of the cosmos who says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is in Leviticus. That's the priestly code. So what we have here with Jesus is the ethic of love on display. And the ethic of love is rooted in the character of God. It is revealed fully in Jesus, and then it is embodied. It is displayed through his disciples. Jesus is bringing forward the ethic of love. He's revealing it, the character of God, and then inviting his followers to embody it. This is what's in front of us today. But that's, that line, do not resist an evil person, still feels so passive, and it raises too many questions. So what commentators do is they get creative because there is actually another way between passivity and violence. And so Scott McKnight offers this translation. I think it's beautiful. He says this, be ready for an act of grace. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, be ready for an act of grace. Let me just ask, is that passive? This is a very simple question. No, is that passive? No, there it is, yes. Uh, Do not take revenge. Do not use violence to resist evil. Be ready for an act of grace. And maybe right now, um, you feel yourself like warming up to Jesus' words. You're like, okay. I came in this morning a little bitter toward Jesus, Um, and that's okay. Like, Jesus can handle our bitterness, just FYI. Um, But right now you're thinking, okay, be ready for an act of grace. Yes, I, I, I can handle that, but this question still lingers in my inner woman or my inner man. Like, does this mean that I am still to take whatever just comes at me? 
What do I actually do when violence happens in my sphere? Or, or like someone's yelling at me. What do I do with that? There's a, a person in our community. She owns a little shop um, up on the north side, which um, this is just a shameless plug. If you're not doing anything this afternoon at 1 o'clock, uh, there's a little market day up on the north side. Go check it out. Support local folks. I don't know. Mallory, no one told me to say that. Love you. Uh, but, but my point is this. At the beginning of the pandemic, when um, business owners are trying to figure out how the heck do we do life together and what does it mean to love people well and love my neighbor? Do I wear a mask? Do I not? Do I ask people to? She's like in there just trying to, I don't know, love people well and ask some folks to do the same. And not even that like language explicitly, just recommends and like would get berated by people. So is, is Mallory just to like, is she just to take that? Because Jesus has said, do not resist. What does that mean? Like re, real life, like what do we do with this? And what I want us to notice, when I, I want us to help, help us see maybe is that Jesus, when he closes something off, do not resist an evil person, he's actually opening something wide. There is so much left open. See, to resist your own forceful response, whether that be to power up or to yell back or to like, I don't know, leave a nasty Yelp review or something like that, whatever it is, to resist your own forceful response, to resist violence without violence by resisting your own response is entirely different than doing nothing. And I'm belaboring this point because this is kind of the thing. Resistance is not passivity. And I think we need to hear this. Like, I'm, I'm okay with the label of pacifist, but I'm also not trying to, like, proselytize pacifists in this room. And, and even that word pacifist has language. Like, what do you mean by that? What, what, what do we do with governance and, like, in wartime? What do we do with the military? What do we do with this stuff? We're going to get there. See, this language of Jesus of being ready for an act of grace, when it's taken up by the new followers of Jesus, it's, it comes out in passages like this. This comes to a community who's trying to make sense of following the way of Jesus together. This comes to a group of Christians in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Yeah? Can we agree on that? Okay, now listen to how Paul goes on. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. You're like, I don't know about that, Paul. Is that people-pleasing? Hmm. If it is possible, he'll, un he'll unpack it. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice the inflection point there shifts. It's not the environment outside. It's actually saying, have this inner disposition of peace, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. There's that proverb right there. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And some of you are like, finally, yes. I've been waiting for like some little caveat, a loophole. I've, yes, um, that's an idiom like um, kill him with kindness, which is kind of an intense statement if you think about it for a moment. This is the, the, the Hebrew idiom, kill him with kindness. But this is where it all goes. Listen to this in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the operative question is, uh, how? <laughs> how am I not overcome by evil? And overcome evil with good. Well, first, we probably have to have some vague notion of what is good and what is evil. So let's just 
start there, reconsider those things. But I think Jesus is actually going to give us four ways to move into this. So are we ready now to finally hear Jesus' words? Okay, I am. Um, Look at verse 39 with me. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. How are you doing? Okay. You want ready to just say amen and go home like this is the word of the Lord? No, uh, we need to understand. See, it could be that Jesus is saying resist all violence, period. But Walter Wink, who has this little book on the Sermon on the Mount, and you may not agree with everything that Walter Wink says, um, but it's sure it's accessible. You can uh, Google it or something. Buy it from an independent bookstore. And uh, Walter Wink on the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the point that the cheek tells the story. The cheek tells the story. So um, what do we mean? Well, it's likely that this story is told in a right-hand dominated culture. Like right-hand dominance is the framework. So if you're a lefty, sorry. Um, but notice, like Jesus, is, Jesus says specifically, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. So if, if Jesus is talking about being slapped on the right cheek in a right-hand dominated culture, how does the right hand slap the right cheek? So I'm not saying, uh, we're not going to practice slapping each other right now, but just turn towards your neighbor real quick. Turn, turn towards your neighbor and just... Um, like, so, so imagine, how does your right hand come in contact with their right cheek? Oh, I heard it. I heard it. It's the backhand. This is the backhanded slap. This is how it goes down. The backhanded slap, it was not this outright assault where you're punching someone in the face. The backhanded is, well, the backhand is essentially a measure to demean another person. And if you're on that mountainside with Jesus, it's likely that you know this slap. You know this slap either by proximity or because you felt its sting. Because this comes from someone who has authority over and against somebody who does not have authority. So you could issue a backhanded slap if you are a master to your slave If you are a husband to your wife or your child, you could issue a backhanded slap in those dynamics, top down. And Jesus is saying here, what? Just take it? At the right time, like pull out your best MMA move and counter? No, he's not saying any of that because Jesus doesn't know what MMA is. No, Jesus says to them, turn the left cheek. Now, go back, um, like, that little moment with your neighbor, and some of you were dangerously close to slapping one another. Um, When you get slapped with a backhand on the right cheek, what does that do to your body? Intuitive question. I'll show you. It moves you, and your left side closes off. If you're slapped on the right cheek, it closes off the left side of your body. So then Jesus says, turn the other one. What is that? What are you literally doing with your body? You are opening yourself up to them. And can they issue that same slap if you only present your left cheek? No. So what is that doing? It is this unexpected move where you, who have just been demeaned, are reframing the situation. There is a space between passivity and violence. You are not like punching them in the face. Essentially, and this is what like Wink would help us to see, is that by turning, you are saying, I will not receive your humiliation. That movement of opening up and receiving an assault is saying, if you want to assault me, you're going to have to do it with your fist like you would an equal. This is radical. 
This is beautiful. This is nonviolent resistance. This is taking in, in this moment and breaking the cycle of violence. And what I would invite us to consider is that this is actually the way of love. This is to treat our neighbors we would have ourselves treated. And you see, this is not a passive thing, and, and this will not happen accidentally. Like, we actually have to practice this. And what I'm not saying is, like, start an argument with someone, and then at the last moment say, Jesus, um, Jesus doesn't let me fight. And then just, like, I don't know, get yourself slapped. Like, I'm not, I'm not advocating for us to, like, start a tussle, try and get slapped, and then follow. No, like, we practice this. Well, what do I mean? You practice it in prayer. If you've ever been in uh, one of our gatherings and we do these kind of awkward moments where we like do weird stuff with our faces, um, where we like make an angry face and then we recite a psalm, like a, a has anybody done this here yet? Yeah, we've done this together. Okay, yeah, we, you can bring this one from home. I'm not going to make us all do it right now. But you, you're, what you're doing when you activate that, like you make an angry face, it tells your body, it tells your brain that, oh no, um, you're angry. And then if you recite back the psalm, like, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord, it actually helps to regulate your body. You, you actually, like, begin in those moments where there is no agitator. You begin to come back to a place of peace, and you train yourself. You practice this so that not if, but when a moment comes where you are either physically slapped or, God forbid, or you are most likely verbally slapped. You will not have to respond in kind, but you can turn the other cheek. You can break that cycle. And I'm not saying this is easy. And, and you know what? That slap actually hurts. And it actually, there's a physical pain. There's an emotional pain. But the point that Jesus is getting at is it does not have to get down deep into your identity. That slap is not who you are. You are one who bears God's image. And Jesus goes on to this end. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. Um, it's hard to tell when Jesus is being funny. I think this is one of those moments. So you feel free to laugh. Huh? Okay, Jesus' statement here, it, it sits up against the tragedy of his day, namely that men and women and families were actively displaced and dispossessed from their land. See, there's this Roman occupying force, and what would happen is that people who were farming their ancestral homeland, sometimes their land was just taken, or then they, um, there were taxes, and they're unable to pay their taxes, and so a wealthy person, a wealthy landowner would come in and buy their land, and then they're working to pay that landowner. But let's say a harvest goes awry, you don't get the yield that you hoped for, now you're unable to pay your dues to farm the land that was your ancestral farmland. Well, in that case, the landowner can take everything. They can take all of your possessions. They can take your underwear. They can take your family, put them into slave labor, indentured servitude. But they can't take your cloak. See, in a desert in the ancient Near East, and even still today, it can be extremely hot in the day and cold at night. And your cloak, your coat, was your last defense. It was the last place of dignity. And somehow that was not broached. So this is a court scene, and the, the image is that you are the type of person who is now in front of somebody who has the capacity, the authority, the means to take everything you have. They're even taking your tunic, your underwear, and Jesus says, give them your coat as well. Now let me just ask you, how would that leave you in court? Can we say it? Naked. Very naked. Um, this is Jesus probably being funny. 
And maybe it doesn't seem so funny to you, or maybe I have an odd sense of humor, but in this moment, like, when you are there, and this person who is trying to seize all of you, all that you have, and you give them, you don't make a negotiation, you give them your coat, you're essentially amplifying the injustice. You are saying, this is how this system works, and actually looks, it stripped me of all dignity, but in that moment, something else happens is it restores your dignity. And this is what's curious, is in the ancient Near East, um, to be naked in front of others, to be exposed in that manner was shameful. So outside of the bonds of a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, there would be shame in that nakedness, but it would not be in the person who is naked. It would be on those who look upon the nakedness. And so when you expose, when you give that code away, you have now brought them to a pra- the place of disgrace, which is the system that they're holding up. Is this making sense? Jesus is doing something radical in this. And here's the thing. This isn't the end because this is meant to move forward. Jesus doesn't stop. In verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. See, under Roman occupation, it was actually by law, a Roman soldier could look at any Jewish citizen, any Jewish person, states person, and they could just require them. They could force them to carry their load. Not every Roman had a horse or a mule or a donkey, but they had a load to carry. And so they could look at someone, let's say you're on a nice date or you're just out with your friends, and they could say, hey, you, come over here and carry my stuff, and you would go a mile. And that was the law. But what Jesus is saying is beyond that, once the mile ends, your dignity begins. And you, under no compulsion, but of your own volition, you go that second mile. It's actually a space where you are recapturing, you're recapturing your dignity. And just imagine the confusion of the guard, like this person who intended either to humiliate you because they could, or they simply wanted you to carry their load. Um, You just keep carrying it. What kind of conversation would ensue? Like maybe you're the type of person, you're a bit more extroverted, you say, so what's it like living in the Galilee? How are you finding the weather this time of year? I, I don't know, what, what do you talk to? What do you talk to? But like the audacity to carry their load. And, and perhaps they're thinking, I only have the legal permission to carry this one, like to make you carry one. What are you doing? Are you trying to get me in trouble? Like just th- this is the type of, there is, a, there is another way with Jesus between passivity and violence. It is a world of creativity, and it is a world of possibilities. This is the flow of Jesus, but what we see is it doesn't end here. Actually, Jesus calls us to imagine a whole other way of living. This ethic of love that displays God's character is fully revealed in Jesus, and then hopefully embodied in his followers, he actually brings it to this depth of simplicity. In verse 42, hear this. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I want, I want us to, to see this as we close. Um, Jesus links nonviolence with enemy love. A, a Roman soldier to a Jewish person would be an enemy. Jesus links nonviolence to enemy love and he links enemy love with generosity. See, we can spin circumstances. We can take this verse and say, yes, this is probably about, I don't know, we would like map it onto our context like a panhandler, which certainly there's relevance to be had here. But the link between enemies 
and generosity are the people of God who are actually reframing what it looks like to be human in that day. Jesus is saying, if there's somebody who has a need, you can attend to that. And we can spend the circumstances, we can make up, I don't know, believe the story, they're just going to spend it on alcohol, whatever, we can avoid eye contact, but I want us to hear this, that Christ is actually turned toward us. That God in Jesus has turned toward you, and he is still turning toward you still. Notice this, this is in verse 42. Go there if you're not. Do not turn away. Why? Because God in Christ has turned toward you. This is the motivation of a follower of Jesus to receive what we have from the Father through the Son, and then empowered by the Spirit, the actual personal presence of the living God to move toward others. See, violence is not just an assault on our physical bodies, although it is. It's not just an assault on emotional realities, although it is. Violence is an assault on our imagination. And, and Jesus, Jesus has this, this, this reality that our imaginations can actually be reformed, that, they, that the substructures of our life can begin to look differently. See, the way of Jesus, it rejects, to my mind, taking up arms even against our enemy. And I get that there are real-life implications of this. Like, I grew up in a home, like, I'm, I'm what some would call a Navy brat. Like, I get the implications. Like, I, I was, part of seminary was paid for by the federal government. Why? Because my dad served in the Navy. So I get that this is messy, and this is like a bird's nest that we don't easily untangle. And I don't think we actually will untangle it, but perhaps we can, have a, we can cross the lines with the peace of Jesus, and something different can come forth, because between passivity and violence, there is another way. It is a way of love, but this is not accidental. It, it, it's going to take practice. And I think we begin to see that love with crystal clarity on the cross. When we focus on the love of our cross-bearing Jesus, we begin to see that it is the most powerful force in the universe. How? Because it turns enemies into friends. This, when you, it, um, anybody do like the year through the Bible kind of stuff? or read through the New Testament, what you'll encounter is as you move through the Gospels that there is like this, this energy that is bubbling up. That's called the resurrection. And that energy breaks out through the life of the church in Acts. And what you see then is that that movement of Jesus continues to go viral and it breaks in, like literally breaks in to cities and places that you would not expect the name of Jesus to have any resonance, but what it does is it starts to transform the people who are receiving the peace of Jesus because they have dignity. They're restored. And so the difference, the difference between where we sit in 2022 and the ancient Near East is that for the most part, we are well. We live in relative peace and comfort. And sure, as followers of Jesus, we might get like the odd... In conversation, I was having a chat with somebody, like the, the most subversive thing perhaps you could do around Jesus and sexual ethics is say, oh, I just don't look at pornography. And people be like, what? Or, or to say like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I like question the assumption that violence is the response. See, there is another way in the midst of all of this, but the way of love will need to look different because I don't think that many of us are getting a backhand slap. But we may be demeaned by our coworkers. In fact, I imagine that that happens. We may encounter moments within our own family where we feel this desire to eye for eye. 
And Jesus' invitation is to something different. It's to be ready for an act of grace, to have our imaginations rewired by this love-shaped justice. And maybe you came in this morning and you were really encouraged by Matt and Allie and you were like, oh my gosh, his mercy is more. And then you hear this teaching text and you're like, oh Lord, have mercy. Like, I just don't know if I can deal with this right now. Because what comes to your mind are all the whatabouts. Okay, Jesus and nonviolence, sure, but, but what about when there's a foreign country that just goes in and makes like, has like a whole propaganda wing that moves in and uh, just to, to recapture, what is this? Like, what does Jesus say to that? Or this is, this is often the one that I'll get the most is what about the intruder and the violence inflicted on a family? What are you going to do there? What does it say about our imaginations that we go to the worst case scenarios? What does it say about our imaginations that have literally been dipped in increasing violence for generations? Like, what does it do to us that we want to go in the, in like, I think the basement of this building, there's this thing called the slaughterhouse. It's a, it's like we're standing on top of a place where people pay to be scared, what is this? Like, what about our imagination? Like, we need to, like, feel something that says, oh, I'm, I don't know what that is because I'm, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't quite know how our brain works, but I'm curious about it. But why do we go there? And I think it's just to say that we've had the bulk of our lives shaped by violence that it's become normal. So what do you think would happen? I just want you to picture in your mind, it won't be hard, who is a person who you would call your enemy? Maybe they're sitting next to you. I hope not. But they might feel like it from time to time. So do you have that person? Persons? Like, what's their name? You don't have to say it out loud. Now, what would it look like if starting today and for the rest of this week, so literally until next Sunday, you committed to pray for them morning, noon, and night? And not just to pray that, like, God would, like, imprecatory psalms, like, not those, but like actually pray that God, like God would treat them the way you want to be treated. What do you, what do you think if you, you did that for just a week? Now let's see, let's, you do that for a month. What do you think would happen if you did that for a year? What if you did it for five years? What if you did it for 10 years? I mean, as a millennial, I can't think past next week. So like, and that's even a stretch for me. Uh, but what do you think would happen if you did that for 15 years? You just actively prayed for those who you call an enemy. Do you think your character might change? There's a real life story where a woman who's being held at gunpoint offers the person a pie. Because there is a solution between violence and passivity. And maybe the, I don't know, the moral of this whole teaching is like start carrying hand pies around. By the way, you can get those hand pies at the market days today. Um, Wow, how do you like how we close that loop? But um, maybe that's, you just carry hand pies. I don't know. But in the name of Jesus, there is another way to be human. This is the call of Jesus. Why not? Why not be the type of people who cross enemy lines and actually see enemies become friends who offer us riches? And I'm not talking about like a blessing from them, but we become the type of people who are a gift in the place that is least expected. And you say, yeah, what about the Crusades? And we have to say, what about Francis of Assisi in the Fifth Crusade? There is another way with Jesus. And the starting point of all of this, and I would just invite you to stand as we turn to respond. But there is, there is an, another way here. And 
And just to remind us all, because, uh, you know, when you end a teaching, it's like, I don't know, maybe for encouragement's sake, but what I want to just bring us back to is the reality, which is this. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, the place of discipleship to Jesus, the place where we start following Jesus is by taking up our cross. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. In other words, the place of, of discipleship to Jesus, the beginning spot, is death. But you know what happens in the wake of the cross? Resurrection. And so what we're going to do is we're going to respond to this. And I invite you to just think about that person, the person who, who you chafe against. And I would just invite you as we sing this next song, as, as, we, um, as we think about praising God, that you would perhaps be be willing to start praising and, and offering blessings. Allow these words to give shape, even today, to something that feels unnatural.